Well, if you're our guest, we are so, so glad that you're here with us. Those of you that are watching online, those of you there in Somerset, we are so glad that you're here. I was thinking about this morning, it's gonna be so cool one day when we're able to welcome campuses from all over the state of Kentucky. Isn't that gonna be awesome? And uh, yeah, I look forward to that, that's awesome. And uh, while you are in the clapping mood, why don't you welcome all of our guests and welcome everybody, join us online. Let them know that you're glad that they're with us. A little over 50 years ago, it was on Good Friday, 1966. Time Magazine released a cover story which would become one of the most famous cover stories of Time Magazine in all of its history before and all of its history that would come after. And in that Time Magazine article, they launched a cover which simply had three words on it. Many of you may have been alive in 1966 and some of you uh, may remember it and some of you may have even read that particular issue of Time Magazine. But on Good Friday, 1966, Time Magazine released a cover story which had three words, three words only. And it wasn't a statement, it was just simply a question. And this has become one of the most famous cover stories and one of the most famous questions that Time Magazine has ever poised. And when that issue went out, in 1966, it sent shockwaves throughout American culture. And here's what the title of the Time Magazine looked like that year. Is God dead? Is God dead? Three words, not even a statement, God is dead, but a question, is God dead? Now, there were some people at that particular time who found the article on the cover very gratifying. There were a lot of people who found it offensive. Matter of fact, thousands of people would write letters to the editors complaining that Time Magazine would put such a cover out and write such a story. But almost everybody who saw the title of the cover story and everyone who read the article itself, I think, could probably agree that it was definitely a provocative article and a provocative title. Now, if you didn't read that particular story or that particular edition of Time Magazine, uh, the article was all about a highlight of young theologians at that particular time back in the mid 60s, 1966, a group of young theologians who were redefining and rethinking their faith. Matter of fact, they were rethinking and redefining God and religion and trying to make sense of an invisible, hidden, and what appeared to be a silent God in a very modern culture. And basically they were wrestling with the question, is God relevant anymore? Is religion relevant anymore? Is Christianity in America relevant anymore? Because God is hidden, God is invisible, he's silent. And here we are in the modern world that is 1966 and a group of young theologians, which became known in time as a group of Christian atheists, they were asking the question, is any of this relevant anymore? Do we need God anymore? Do we need religion anymore? Because now science has given us an answer to the origin of the universe and to the natural world. We no longer need God to explain where we came from. We no longer need religion to try to help us make sense of how we got here. Science cleared all of that up in 1966. And so people were saying, do we need God anymore? Do we need the scriptures? Do we need religion? Do we need the church? Do we need Christianity? Because even back in 1966, people were getting busier and busier and they had less time and less space for God in their lives. And that was over 50 years ago. And here we are today. And you know, the news is this, that this Time Magazine cover story did not mark the end of God in this country. God is still alive. Religion is still very much alive in this country. It did not mark the end of religion. It did not mark the end of the Christian church in this country. However, what it did do, it gave us a snapshot 
of what life was like in 1966, what life was like before 1966, and a little bit of what's been happening ever since 1966. Uh, Phil Goldberg, who writes for the Huffington Post, uh, he looked back on this 1966 cover story, Is God Dead by Time Magazine, and this is what he remarked about it. He said, this is the important part of that article. Even though it didn't mark the end of religion, it didn't mark the end of God in this country, this is what he said. He said, it foresaw a religious revolution. That's, that's a big term there, religious revolution. It foresaw a religious revolution marked by the emergence of an independent, pluralistic, non-dogmatic spirituality whose ramifications we won't fully fathom for quite a while. Now, he wrote these words about a year ago. And he says, we still don't understand the full ramifications of that 1966 cover story, which asked a three-worded question, is God dead? Because back in 1966 and pre-1966, really specifically, you could go your entire life and maybe never meet anybody who believed anything different than you did. You could go your entire life and never rub shoulders with anyone who had a different worldview or a different religion than what you did. But the world was modernizing and all of a sudden in the mid-1960s, people were hanging out with people who didn't believe what they believed. And those people were asking those people questions about what they believed and why they believed it and they didn't have good answers to those questions. Matter of fact, they'd never thought about those questions before. They'd never heard the local church talk about those questions before. A lot of people went off to college campuses and they heard different professors say this or say that and to give this particular argument or this particular list of evidences for this or that and all of a sudden, they never thought about that before. They'd never entertained such ideas before and their church had certainly never talked about those kinds of things before. And now all of a sudden people are having to deal with a conflict of worldview with the people around them. And the effects are still being felt today because up until then you might go your entire life and never meet anybody who believed anything different than you. And so Phil Goldberg says that we are still feeling the ramifications of that article still today. We haven't figured it out exactly what that article really, really means. But the one thing I think we can all agree on, that there are some ramifications that we are now living in the midst of. Now, I'm gonna give you a lot of information over the next few minutes because I believe that you are an above average church audience. If you are not intelligent and above, you know, Average, you wouldn't be here. But because you're here at the Creek Church, that tells me something about you. You're smarter than the average church person. So I'm gonna tell you a lot of information because if you're new here, a series is like one big sermon. And today is like the introduction to the sermon. So if you leave today with more questions than answers, it's just an introduction. If nothing gets resolved for you at the end of this, remember, it's an introduction. The only thing you have to do is come back next week. And if we haven't answered your, you know, your questions, if we haven't resolved your tension, then you just keep coming back. And hopefully by the end of this multi-week sermon, uh, we will get you to the place where you wanna be in understanding the content that we're talking about. But back in 1966, 97%, 97% of people said they believed in God. That's like more than nine out of 10. That's like nine and seven tenths of a person who said, yes, I believe in God. 97% of people back in 1966 said, I believe in God. But what the article in 1966 tells us, and if we pay attention and if we read between the lines, back in 1966, there was already a conversation that had been taking place in this country. It was a conversation that was being had behind you know, the secrecy and the privacy of our walls and our homes. Husbands and wives were talking about this. Children perhaps were talking about this with their friends. 
College students were talking about this on college campuses. Adults, men and women were talking about this at the workplace. Some of this conversation was being played out in the public square, but there was a conversation being had in this country and here was the conversation. Is God relevant anymore? Do we need God? Do we need religion? Do we need specifically Christianity? Do we need Jesus? Do we need the church? And that was the conversation that had been happening prior to 1966. It was still happening in 1966. And it is a conversation that has only grown more louder or grown louder in the years that came after 1966. So this is a conversation that the article in 1966 reminds us and teaches us that was already happening in our country. Is God needed? Is religion needed? Is the church needed? Is Christianity needed? And this is a conversation that evidently the church did not handle well then, and we have not handled it well since. Matter of fact, some might even say this is a conversation that the church has botched. That we botched this conversation when a bunch of people were talking about, is God relevant? Why is Christianity relevant? Why is the church relevant? Why is Jesus relevant? The church didn't handle that conversation well. And you say, well, what makes you say that we botched the conversation in this country? Because... 50 years after the Time Magazine article, which asked the question, is God dead? 50 years after that, in 2009, over 50 years later, in 2009, Newsweek launched their own cover story, which would highlight the seismic shifts that had happened since 1966 among the religious landscape of this country. And so in 2009, Newsweek, they launched this particular cover that said, the decline and fall of Christian America. Back in 2009, you may remember it, lots of people were talking about this. People inside the church, people outside of the church. Some evangelicals were screaming crisis. Some evangelicals were trying to dismiss the article saying that the contents of the article and the statistics were misleading and that there's nothing to be worried about. We're doing just fine. So there was a lot of people talking about this. But this Newsweek article took together everything that we know about the American religious landscape and looked at the numbers and looked at the statistics and looked at the trends and Newsweek declared that this is now the decline and the fall of Christian America. That once upon a time, perhaps America was a Christian nation, but we are soon approaching the point where America is no longer a Christian nation. It is about to be a post-Christian nation. And the thing that was so shocking inside this particular Newsweek article was the fact, not that people were walking away from the church and not that people were walking away from faith, but not only were people walking away from faith in the Pacific Northwest and the progressive Northeast, but all of a sudden it was happening in the very heart of the Bible Belt South. And now from East Coast to West Coast and from North to South and all points in between, there was an epidemic of people who were leaving the church, who were leaving their faith, they were leaving Christianity. And this article brought it to everybody's attention that from 1966 to 2009, there had been seismic shifts in the religion of this country. And so the article was all about the fact that we are soon approaching being a post-Christian nation. And so here we are today, less than 10 years from when this particular Newsweek article came out. And in just that period of time since this article, colossal changes, I think we can all agree, colossal changes have happened in this country since then. The morality and the views about morality and what's right and what's wrong have drastically changed since 2009. Matter of fact, sociologists say that the world and specifically culture in this country is changing more rapidly than it's ever changed before. We can barely keep up with it. 
So some two, from 2009 to the present day, there's been lots of changes in the country. Right now seems to be the new wrong and wrong seems to be the new right. And this is where we are. This is our reality. This is the day that we're in. You say, why in the world should we even care about this? Because we are where we are today because we have not cared about this in the past 50 years. We thought that we're okay no matter what was happening in the culture. So we stopped paying attention to what was happening in the world around us, what was happening in our homes, what was happening with our children, our grandchildren, our coworkers, our neighbors, our communities, our nation. And we just didn't care. And because of it, we've landed in a brand new reality where just in the past few years, everything has changed in this country. The world that you grew up in is no longer. The world that you participated in just 10 years ago no longer exists. George Barna, who runs the Barna organization, who helps us make sense of statistics and demographics in this country as it relates to faith and a whole host of, of other things. This is what he says about the current state of American faith and Christianity. This is what he says. He says, we're living in a time of great skepticism and cynicism towards institutions. That just in general, people are skeptical and cynical of anything that is organized, whether it's corporate, whether it's religious, and he points out particularly the church. Once upon a time, people gave in this country, the church, the benefit of the doubt. That is no more. No more do we as the church get the benefit of the doubt. Newsflash. No longer do you as a Christian in this country get the benefit of the doubt. If you're part of the church, if you're a Christian, automatically people are skeptical and cynical of you. He says, add to this the broader secularization trend in American culture and a growing antagonism towards faith claims. And these are uncertain times for sure for the U.S. church. This is where we are. In this country, 85% 85% of the people who were raised in the church, among the 85% who were raised in the church, one-fourth of them, 25% of them no longer claim to be Christian. That means among those who sit in our children's ministries in this nation, our youth ministries in this nation, who sit in pews, who sit in seats, just like you are today, people who were raised in the church, of the 85% of people who were raised in the church in this country, 25%, one-fourth of them, no longer claim to be followers of Jesus. This is where we are. Today, for every one convert, for every one convert that comes into the church, there are four that walk out of the church. Think about that. That means we are losing ground quickly. For every one that decides to come into the church, there are four that decide to leave the church, four out of five young evangelicals, four out of five young evangelicals will leave the faith by age 29, four out of five. 70% of them will leave by age 23. That's your sons and daughters. That's your grandchildren. That's your nieces. That's your nephews. That's friends of your family. That's extended family. 70% of them will leave the faith altogether by age 23. Now listen to this. I know I'm giving you a lot of information, but you need to understand this so you understand why we're doing this series. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, so 18 to 29-year-olds, now think about that. Some of you, many of you fit that demographic. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, there are twice as many atheists in that demographic of 18 to 29-year-olds as there are evangelicals. 
The number of people who claim to be Christian is falling in this nation, and the number of people who claim to be agnostic and atheist, that number is on the rise in this country. And perhaps one of the most troubling realities that we're a part of right now is among the millennials. Among millennials, and a lot of people say that's ages 25 to 38, a lot of you. Among 25 to 38 year olds or the millennials, 27%, over a fourth of them, when they think of the Bible, they think of the Bible as a book that is used to oppress people, both historically and presently. That means that whenever somebody, a part of that generation, that when a fourth of that generation hears the Bible says, they think of a book that is used to oppress people. That's what they think. No longer does the Bible says have as much weight as it once did in this nation. No longer getting on TV and radio and writing books to non-believers telling them what the Bible says works like it used to because over a fourth of 25 to 38 year olds says, I'll tell you what I think about the Bible. I've read history, I've even read church history. And I see the Bible as something that has been used to oppress people time and time and time again. I see it historically and I see it as I look around presently in this country. And where this has brought us to is this right here. That the fastest growing religious group in this country, the fastest growing group, which is now the largest religious group in this country, is a group of people known as the nuns. N-O-N-E-S, basically a group of people who do not affiliate to any faith. And now one out of every four Americans, one out of every four when asked, what's your faith? I don't have faith. I, I don't associate with faith. I don't claim faith. I'm not affiliated. It is the largest and fastest growing religious group in this country. Just a couple of years ago, it was the second largest. Today, it is the single largest religious group in this country. So among all those people departing the faith, all those people that are walking away, those people who sat and listened to our sermons and for a season they sang our songs and they did children's ministry and they did student ministry, but then they decided, I don't need this, I don't want this, this is not relevant for me, this is not helpful to me, I think I'm done with it. And then they walk away. Among those people when they are asked, why did you walk away? What do you think about Christians? And what opinion made you walk away? And here's what they say about us. You put, you put together all of what people are saying and this is what they say. This is what the deconverts think. Christians are judgmental, hypocritical, homophobic, xenophobic, insensitive, hyperpolitical, irrelevant, boring, intolerant, anti-science, anti-ethnic, and just generally angry people. That's what they say about you. That's what they think about you. That's what they think about me. That's what they think about us in general. Now, this is not always true, but I just wanna put the cards on the table. In lots of cases, this is true. And sometimes you may not like it, but it's okay. You can have the right to be wrong. It is a free world. But here's the deal. Sometimes the loudest people that are speaking in our country on behalf of Christians fit many of those descriptions. Sometimes the Christians that other Christians want to put up there on the pedestal and say, listen to this person, he's so smart, fits part, sometimes most, in few cases, maybe all of those descriptions. And because this is what they think about us, because of the people that are walking away, 
Because this is, what they, this is not the people who were never here. This is the people who were here. They talked with us. They listened to the sermons. They read our social media posts. And they said, hmm, that's kind of what I think. That's kind of what I hear. And where that has brought us to is this right here. That the younger a generation is in this country, the more post-Christian it is. That the younger the generation in this country, the more post-Christian they are. Now, I'm about to make some of you feel old, but I want you to think about this for a moment. Nearly 50% of the population of this country, that's well over 300 million people, nearly half of the population of this country are 38 years old and younger. Think about that. Nearly half the people in this country is 38 years old or younger. And within that demographic of 38-year-old and younger, we find the single largest generation in the history of the world. What many sociologists have titled Generation Z. Generation Z. It is the single largest generation in the history of the world. It is larger than the millennial generation. But among Generation Z, Here's what you need to know about this largest single generation that we've ever known in this country. That by 2020, 40% of all consumers in this country will be part of Generation Z. That's not part of a culture, that is culture. I've been reading about this all year because the days of doing ministry the way that we did them 50 years ago, it's over. And a lot of churches in this nation, they've adopted an approach to ministry that they designed in 1950 and 1960, and we are not living in 1950 and 1960 anymore. But more than that, we are not living in 2009, 2010 anymore either. So churches who decided to do church a particular way in 2009, 2010, we don't live in that world anymore. And we need to know what's happening because in 2020, the year 2020, 40% of all the consumers in this nation are gonna be Generation Z. They are the first generation in the history of this nation that are post-Christian. They've been raised by parents who were in and out of church. Many of them were raised by parents who weren't in the church. Church is never in Christianity and faith has never been a priority in the homes that they were brought up in. And they're the single largest generation and the first post-Christian generation in this culture. Now, so why are you telling them this is? Because today, 48% of our nation is post-Christian. But in 2020, in just a little over two years, you and I who follow Jesus, you and I who claim to be part of the church are gonna be a statistical minority in this nation. In the year 2020, we officially crossed the midpoint. In 2020, we officially become a post-Christian nation. Everything has changed. And dear friend, you best buckle up because everything is about to change. It is not the world you grew up in. It is not the world you were a part of just 10 years ago. And if the church doesn't pay attention, if we don't pay attention, we are going to be outside looking in when we ought to be on the inside, just as Jesus said, being salt, being light, being ambassadors and witnesses and carriers of good news. And if we don't know where we are, we don't know what to do with where we are. Gabe Bullard, who is a writer for the National Geographic magazine, 
He took all of this information about where we are and where we've been from 1966 to the 2009 article and, and even what's happened in the years past. And here's what he says. He remarks, there have long been predictions that religion would fade from relevancy as the world modernizes. But all recent surveys are finding that it's happening startlingly fast. Faster than anybody thought, faster than anybody would have imagined. Religion is rapidly becoming less important than it's ever been. Even to people who live in countries like us, where faith has affected everything from rulers to borders to architecture. So what's happened in the past 50 years is what a lot of people within Christendom call the second fall. At the first fall, man expelled humanity from the garden. But at the second fall, humanity has returned the favor and we have expelled God from our homes, from our consciousness, from our conversations, from our way of life. And more and more, more and more, we find that there is a lot of people it's not so much that they're rejecting Christianity as much as they're just not thinking about it. They're not thinking about it. You grew up thinking about faith. You, you went to bed thinking about heaven and hell. You went to bed just praying, oh, now let me sometimes sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. You did that too, right? It was like every night, it's like insurance prayer. Just in case it didn't take. I'm gonna do it all over again, Lord. And, and especially Friday night, Saturday night. I mean, you had to cover a lot in the weekend. It's like, God, if there's no such thing as eternal security, I'm getting saved tonight all over again, right? They're not thinking about it. A vast amount of our culture, they're not even thinking about God. They're not thinking about the church. They're not thinking about faith. Some of them say, I don't want it. But many of them say, I'm just not thinking about it. And if this current generation were to answer the question first poised in 1966, if this generation answered the question, is God dead? This generation perhaps would answer this way. I don't know. I don't really care. And to be honest, I really haven't thought about it. It's not so much that they're agnostic as much as they are apathetic to faith. This is where we are. This is where we are today this is what's happened in just the past 50 years. And so my question is, what do we do about it? What kind of conclusions can we draw? And the only conclusion that we can draw is this right here, that there is an increasing number of people who seem to believe that their lives will be better without faith. That there's a lot of people, people who grew up in church, people who left the church, that when they think about faith and they think about Jesus and they think about Christianity, they think, that their life will be better without it. They attended our churches, they didn't find it relevant, they didn't find it attractive, they didn't find it helpful. They heard us talk about Jesus, they heard us talk about God, and they didn't find it relevant, they didn't find it attractive, they didn't find it helpful. And so they said, I don't need it. Some said, I don't want it. Others were like, I'm not really even thinking about it. There was a group of people who sat in churches all across this country and they found what was going on incredibly resistible. Highly resistible. And they said, mm, nah, I, I just don't feel it. It doesn't make sense. 
They don't really talk about anything that anybody else is talking about. They don't have any good answers to my, what I feel like are really good questions. Matter of fact, if I ask my questions, they seem to get angry. It seems like they're always angry at other people. It seems like they demonize the other political party. It seems like they've always got a beef with somebody and they're always the victim. Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. They found us incredibly resistible. They found faith highly resistible. Where we are today is much like the, the times that Jesus entered into when he first showed up on the planet. When Jesus first showed up on the planet, there was a group of people who found faith, faith of all different shades, sizes, and labels, highly resistible. And Jesus stepped into a world where a lot of people were leaving behind faith, where a lot of people had given up on God, where a lot of people, when they looked into their religion and they listened to their religion, they said, no, I don't think this is for me. That was the world that Jesus stepped in, which is a lot like ours. This is not something to be angry about where we are today. This is not something to be scared about where we are today. This is something that gives us an opportunity to do what we've been called to do, which is to be salt and to be light and to be an influence in our culture, which obviously we have not been a very good one for the past 50 years and we're losing ground faster than we can gain it, it seems like. But that was the world that Jesus showed up in. Matter of fact, the world that Jesus showed up in was a very religious Jewish world and a very pagan Roman world. Don't confuse paganisms, you know, pagans with being irreligious. Paganism was a religion, one of the world's oldest religion, thousands of years old. You had the Jewish religion and you had pagans with their religion. Now those two, paganism and Judaism, they didn't agree on hardly anything. They didn't look anything alike, but they were still both religious. And when Jesus showed up, both groups of people felt as though their systems had failed them. There was a large growing number of people inside Judaism and inside paganism that felt as though there was something, there had to be something better. That there had to be. Because they examined Judaism and Judaism offered hundreds of rules and over a thousand years of tradition and history. But yet all the laws that Judaism offered felt pointless, it felt empty, and it really didn't make a whole lot of sense. So there was a lot of people leaving Judaism. There was a lot of people walking away from the Jewish faith because it just didn't seem to be working for them. Inside paganism, paganism offered pleasures that Judaism would never allow but yet pleasure seemed to be without point and without purpose. And they felt as empty as what Jewish people, Jewish people had a lot of constraints. Pagan people had hardly any restraints and both felt as though their systems had failed them in some way. Both were looking for something better. Neither group felt as though they had a relationship with God. The Jewish God felt impersonal, seemed angry, bent on judgment, but he didn't seem personal. You got a priest to offer your sacrifices. You didn't even get to go into the place where God lived. Only one priest, one time a year, got to go back there. So God seemed impersonal, God seemed distant. You seemed to be at the mercy of your leaders because as a common person, you really didn't know what God was up to. They were the ones who knew the scriptures. They were the ones who knew the holy writings, but, but God just seemed impersonal. There was no sure footing with God. You never really knew where you were standing with God. 
You were trying to keep score and wondering if your score added up to the same score that God had. And so you just never really knew where you were with God and the Jewish faith. And the same way with pagans, they felt like their gods, plural, just toyed with them. And they would do certain things and they would act in a particular way in order to get the gods to do what they wanted them to do, to give a good harvest, to send the rains. And so God in both systems had become like a puppet. There was a list of things that you should do and not do in order to get God to do what you wanted him to do and to keep God from doing what you didn't want him to do. And that was religion. And both religions in Jesus' day left a lot of people feeling as though there has to, there has to be something better than this. And so that's when Jesus came to show us that there was indeed something better. Jesus presented to the world a better idea of what God was like. When Jesus showed up, he showed up to say, yes, there is something better. If you're Jewish, there's something better for you. If you're pagan, there's something better for you. And when Jesus showed up, he showed up to say to both of those groups of people, both of you misunderstand God. Neither one of you understand God as he truly is. You think there's a bunch of gods, you think there's one true God, but both of you are wrong about God. And Jesus showed up to teach people a better idea of what God was like. And Jesus showed up and Jesus said, let me tell you what God's like. God loves you. He loves us. I mean, really, he loves us? Yes, he loves you as an individual. He knows your name. And not only does he know your name, but he knows the number of hairs on your head. He is intimately aware with the details of your life. He cares about you. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And Jesus said, I have come to present to you a better idea of who God is because both of you have the wrong idea of God. And perhaps in our culture today, the reason that so many people believe that their life would be better without God, without faith, Maybe perhaps we live in a culture that has a bad misunderstanding of who God is and what God is like. And Jesus said, I have come to show you a better idea of who God is and what God is like. And when you think about God from now on, I want you to think about him as father. And I want you to think of yourself as a son or a daughter of God. And those of you who are human and love your children like you love your children, I want you to know that there is a God in heaven who loves you so much more than what you're even capable of loving your children. That's the idea of God that I want to present to you. Matter of fact, it was Jesus who looked at his disciples and said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus said, if you really want to know what God's like, <laughs> look at me. If you want to know what God sounds like, listen to me. That God is not distant, God is not fickle, God is not unknowable. God knows you and God wants you to know him. God is not impersonal. God wants to be in a personal relationship with you. And Jesus said, I have come to show you who God is and what God is like. And for those of you who are Jewish, Jesus would say, sure, God was revealed in the law. And sure, God was revealed in the prophets, but in these last days, God has perfectly, completely revealed himself to all the world through me, his son. And so Jesus showed up to offer something better. And that being a better idea of who God was. But not only that, but Jesus showed up to present to the world a better way to approach and live life. He showed up and said, hey, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to forgive the unforgivable because that's a better way. I want you to love the unlovable because that's a better way. The Jewish people, they believed in loving people, but only Jewish people and not all Jewish people, only the Jewish people that agreed with them. But Jesus said, I want you to understand that everybody in this world is your neighbor. Black, yellow, red, white, doesn't matter. They are all indeed precious in his sight. I want you to know that everybody's your neighbor and I want you to love your neighbor as you love yourself. I want you to forgive them. I want you to bless them. I want you to be compassionate towards them. If you see one of your neighbors in need and you can do something about it, I want you to meet it. If they don't agree with you politically, if they don't agree with your worldview, if they don't believe what you believe, if they don't act the way you act, I don't care. That's your neighbor and I want you to love them like you love yourself. For those of you, Jesus would say, who have power and authority and wealth, then you should use your power, your authority, and your wealth for people who don't have power, authority, and wealth. Jesus said, because that's a better way. I want you to serve one another because that's gonna be the greatest among you. The people who learn to serve other people. Jesus said, I wanna show you about a better way. Both Judaism and paganism resulted in self-centered people. Jesus said, that is not a better way. A better way is looking around saying, you are more important than me. And that's what Jesus did. He showed us a better way to approach and live life. Jesus showed up into the world in the first century and he presented to the world a better hope than religion could ever offer. Pagan people and Jewish people both approached God on the terms of code and conduct. That there was a code to live by and a conduct to surrender to. And if you didn't live by the code and if your conduct didn't match the code, then you were out of sorts with God and the gods and anything could happen to you. So there would be a list of things you would do and not do and hopefully by doing or not doing those things, God would look favorably on you. But if you were out with God, God was certainly going to be out with you. And this was certainly even more pronounced among the Jewish people who had lived for 1400 years with the idea of code and conduct. Matter of fact, they had a whole law. They had the 10 commandments and then they had over 600 commandments that God had delivered through Moses to the nation of Israel. That's how they approached God every day through this idea of morality, of rules to keep, boxes to check. I gotta be in with God so God's in with me and if I'm out with God, God's out with me. That was life, both for the Jewish person and the pagan person, but specific, specifically for the Jewish person. God had entered into an arrangement with Israel and here's what God said. I'm gonna make a covenant with you. I'm gonna make a promise, a contract, that if you obey me, I will bless you. That if you obey me, I will protect you. The inference being, if you do not obey me, I will not bless you and I will not protect you. And you read the history of the Old Testament and you see that play out over and over again. Israel turned to God, God would protect them, God would bless them. They would turn from God, forget God, rebel against God, and God would send the Babylonians in, God would send the Greeks in, God would send the Assyrians in to judge the nation as instruments of God's judgment. And, and that's how they'd approach God for over 1,400 years. That's a deep habit. That was their system. That was their religion. That was their understanding of God. But when Jesus showed up, he said, I want to tell you about a better hope that no religion can offer. And when Jesus got to the end of his life, the night that he's gonna be betrayed and arrested, Jesus wanted to celebrate Passover with his followers. So they went to Jerusalem, they rented an upper room, and this is what the Gospel of Luke says. This is one of the most controversial things 
that ever happened in the life of Jesus, but we miss it and we don't even think about it. It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Passover was a night that happened 1400 years before this. In Egypt, God's people, Israel, had been slaves to Pharaoh for over 400 years. But on the last night in Egypt, God had already raised up a leader by the name of Moses. And there had been plagues that had been, you know, visited upon the house of Pharaoh. And so God told the nation of Israel, tonight's your last night in Egypt. And I want you to have a meal. There's going to be a death angel that goes throughout all the land of Egypt. And it's going to kill all the firstborns in the land. But for you, here's what I want you to do. I want, to, I want you to take a lamb, a perfect lamb, without blemish. And I want you to sacrifice it. And I want you to take the blood and I want you to put it over the doorpost of your house. And when the death angel passes over, it will see the blood and not visit your house. And so that night was their last night in Egypt. And then God delivered them out of slavery, sent them across a parted Red Sea and eventually over into a land of promise. And for 1400 years, once a year, at the feast of the Passover, the nation of Israel would have a meal and they would remember that God had delivered them from Egypt. And here's what Jesus says. This is all about to change. What you've been doing for 1400 years, um, I know this is gonna be a little offensive to you. I know that it's gonna cause you to gasp, but I want you to listen because what you've been doing for 1400 years, your forefathers and grandparents and great-grandparents, he said, listen to me. And it says, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in that moment, Jesus changed the meaning of Passover once and for all. Jesus said, no longer do I want you to do this and think about what happened in Egypt, but I want you to think about what I'm about to do for you. You don't fully understand it, but I'm about to go to the cross and I'm gonna die for your sins. And when I die for your sins, I'm gonna be buried, but on the third day, I'm gonna be raised from the dead. And when I'm raised from the dead, I'm gonna make it possible for you to be saved, to be rescued out of the tyranny and the slavery of sin. And I'm gonna bring you out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. You thought it was spectacular what God did for Israel back in Egypt. What I'm about to do for you is far better. I'm about to save you out of sin. <laughs> he said, from now on, you're gonna do this and think about me. And it says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant. And if there is a new covenant, there must be a what? Talk to me, an old covenant. This is the new covenant, the new arrangement. It's new and it's better. It's new and it's better than the old. It's better than what you've known. It's better than what you've been told. You suspected there must be something better. I have come to tell you there is something better. I have come to start and initiate a new covenant, my blood which is poured out for you. Because in the old covenant, God said, if you obey me, I will love you. If you obey me, I'll protect you. I will bless you. It was a conditional covenant. But Jesus said, oh, <laughs> I have come to show you a new and better covenant, one that is not conditional on your behavior. It is unconditional because of me. A new and better covenant. And so when Christianity launched, 
when it started. Nobody thought of it as a new religion. The Jewish people looked at Christianity and says, this is not a religion. The pagans looked at Christianity and said, this is not religion. You know why? It had nothing that religions typically have. There were no priests. What kind of religion has no priests? There was no religion on the face of the planet that didn't have a priesthood. There always has to be a big shot. There always has to be a hierarchy of people who have special access to God. The Christianity launch and had no priest because Jesus said, you don't need a priest. I am your priest. I have mediated to God on your behalf. And it's even better than that. You're priests and you have access to God. You don't have to go through anybody else. You can walk into the very presence of God. You have access, not just once a year behind the veil. Anytime you are a priest, it was better. There were no temples in this new movement of Christianity because Jesus said, you tear down this temple, referring to himself, I'll rebuild it in three days. The temple was where people went to meet God. In this new covenant, our temple is Jesus. He is the place where the glory of God, he is the glory of God. And beyond that, he's even better than that. You are all temples of the Holy Spirit, that the glory and the power of God lives inside of you. And they looked and they said, where's your temples? We don't have temples. And thousands of years of history, religious history ended with the launch of Christianity because there was no longer a requirement for animal sacrifice because Jesus said I am your sacrifice for sin once and for all and because of me there is no other sacrifices that need to be made because I have come to tell you about a new and better covenant and that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks because in the first century when people looked at the church they saw something difficult to resist. Difficult to resist. And when they heard what Jesus had to say and they heard what the first Christians had to say about God and about this thing called the good news, they listened and they thought to themselves, if this is true, this is better. And next week we're gonna talk about how Jesus made it better because no longer is it about law, but it is about grace. What are your responsibilities to the Old Testament law? Should you care about what Leviticus says? Do you care about what Deuteronomy says? Should you? Do you have any moral responsibility to the Old Testament law? And Jesus said, when you hear what I got to say, it's better, it's better. So don't miss it. May we get this right. May we point people's attention back to Jesus And perhaps when they hear Jesus and they see us represent Jesus, maybe there'll be a generation of people that will begin to look in and say, that's difficult to resist because if that's true, it's better. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for something new and better that he came to present to the world. Some of us may feel like All of our lives, we thought there was something better than what we heard. And the better has a name, his name is Jesus. Jesus is better than any alternative. 
Jesus presents us a better idea of God, a better way to approach and live life. God help us as a church to understand where we are and to present Christianity as a better option. And it's a better option because it's the best option. And it's best because in the end, it's all about Jesus. Thank you that you're our hope and our confidence. In Jesus' name.